0: MC Lobshire, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast and also the president and chief wealth and investment strategist of Producers Wealth, where we help our clients integrate cashflow banking, also known as infinite banking, with their business and investments. If you're interested in learning more about how we create strategies that integrate cashflow banking and investments to turbocharge them, you can access a video series at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's your own banking system.com. Welcome to the Cash Flow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Here is your host, Inside the Dojo, MC Laubscher. Hello, Cashflow Ninjas, MC Lobster here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today, and in today's show, I'm joined by my friend Hunter Thompson that will share how to perform due diligence on commercial real estate. Hunter is a full time real estate investor and founder of Cashflow Connections. Since starting Cashflow Connections, Hunter has helped investors allocate capital to over 100 properties, which have a combined asset value of more than $350 million. His experience includes investments in self-storage facilities, residential mortgage notes, mobile home parks, single-family acquisitions, hard money loans, office buildings, and multifamily real estate syndications. In connection with these investments, he has worked with some of the most experienced and well-respected asset teams across the United States and Canada. Hunter is also the author of Little Boxes, Big Profits, A Passive Investor's Guide to Self-Storage.
1: Are you an investor looking for passive cash flow but don't have the time to explore your options? Discover real estate. It's the best option for passive income that savvy investors have been turning to for years to generate income and build wealth. But the reality is real estate investing takes expertise, market knowledge, and time. So what do you do if you don't have the time or market knowledge? Discover how many business investors have found a way to generate cash flow from real estate investing. Their secret? They partner with proven private real estate investment funds. Four Peaks Capital Partners have created a system that allows accredited investors the opportunity to invest in undervalued assets to generate passive income and capital gains. Invest with the cash flow experts and sit back while Four Peaks does all the work. Call Four Peaks Capital Partners at 877-5-INCOME. That's 877-5-INCOME or go to privateincomeinvesting.com. An offer to buy or sell securities is only made by a private placement memorandum. Prospective investors must read the PPM in its entirety before making an investment decision.
2: Hunter, welcome back to the show. MC, honored to be back. Thanks again for having me on.
1: Yeah, excited to have you
0: back on. Uh, It's it's been a while. Um, Hunter, for some of my listeners that uh, are not familiar with you and what you do at Cashflow Connections, can you give a little bit about uh, or just share a little bit about your background and, and journey with them?
2: Yeah, sure. So basically, I studied economics in college. I think a lot of people, whatever they studied in college wasn't really useful. The same was true for economics because the stuff they taught you in school was really not applicable to the real world. But I was just really interested in the topic. So when 2008 happened, I was very bullish on the US. I figured that there'd be an opportunity in financial assets because the financial assets of all different asset classes had basically collapsed. Um, I was very originally interested in stocks because of the liquidity of the market in the sense that you can buy and sell. But I I think really it came down to the fact it's basically just a marketing ploy. That's what people are most interested in. So I started investing in stocks in 2008, saw some significant gains, but I was very much turned off in 2010. Now, for a lot of people, they were turned off in financial markets in 2008. But for me, that was like a green light. 2010, was when the European debt crisis really took place. And this is something I speak about publicly when I talk about it, but essentially it was very similar to the European, it was very similar to the the U.S. financial crisis in Europe. The problem was it caused tremendous volatility in the U.S. markets people were talking about the Greece bond yields and saying, you know, if it stayed below 7%, the S&P was going to be fine. But if it went above 7% interest, the S&P was going to collapse. And I just was thinking like, how is it the case that all of these financial assets are completely intermingled? And under what circumstance, what type of infrastructure would it take to be able to actually conduct accurate due diligence on something like the Greece bond yields? And that's when I was just like, we have to find a more simple investment vehicle which allows you to create accurate due diligence so you can actually create predictable outcomes for yourself. That's what really led me to real estate. You know, I started with investing with friends and family, saw significant success because of the relationships we developed. And since then, we've created you know, a fully functioning private equity company, about 250 investors, and we have about 60 million under management. So things have gone quite well since those days and I'm really happy that that turnaround really took place.
0: Now, you've been up to some really, really cool stuff and uh, uh, have been... Uh- well, just spoke at Freedom Fest, right? Shared the stage with, uh, with uh, Peter Schiff and a, a couple of other folks. Uh, can you share a little bit about your experience on Freedom Fest and, uh, and all the other things you've been up to?
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm, actually, it's probably a good thing talking about this, especially with your audience. I know that you've had a lot of the major movers and shakers in that niche on your program, which, I, first of all, I want to commend you for awesome conversations. You know, when I was asked to be on that panel... It was with Peter Schiff, David Tice, Doug Casey, Gina Lofton, some some really influential people. And it was really an honor to be on there. And the panel was to discuss a movie, which is coming out soon, called The Housing Bubble, which is basically a response to The Big Short. A lot of people have seen The Big Short. The problem with The Big Short, it's a great movie. The problem is if you're an Proponent of the Austrian school, you actually know what really caused a lot of these problems and while the stuff they talked about in the big short probably didn't help it's like if you're watching a documentary about someone that's sick and they're following this guy around where you know they're going to him his work and he's drinking diet sodas and they're like having all these doctors come on and talk about how there's a Relationship between sugar intake and diabetes, and how the diet sodas probably aren't helping his health and could be causing some problems. But you happen to know that person personally, and you happen to know that if the cameras were following him when he went home, that the guy's shooting a cocktail of heroin and steroids in his eyeballs. But they didn't put that in the documentary, so that was kind of frustrating for people that were watching The Big Short that think about the economy the way that I do. This was really a good answer to that. So it was an opportunity to talk about things like. The interest rates and the continued suppression of interest rates, which necessarily inflate housing bubbles, and the fact that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had a directive from the government to the tune of a trillion dollars multi trillion dollar directive to specifically explicitly give mortgages to people that would quote not be able to get them otherwise right now you know you have a problem <laughs> when politicians start becoming super charitable all of a sudden as if they are donating charitable contributions to some charity which is going to allow people to get mortgages but it's not their money right it's yours it's yours it's mine and so that's basically how that massive bubble was created not something like the repeal of glass Steagall, which is all we've heard since then
0: <laughs> right right now it's very very interesting because i i couldn't agree with you more. I enjoyed the movie, but of course, it's you know, it's sensationalism. It's Hollywood. It's uh, you know, it's about right. this big, this big hit that this guy is going to get when it all comes down, and uh, they 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 kind of browse over a lot of the things as you mentioned that uh, really caused all of this mess because there's really really a lot of different variables at play uh, that uh, that the Austrian school did see coming, but a lot of the mainstream folks. Uh, and people even commentating on it now, really, really, they haven't really put it put it together.
2: Yeah, it's still fascinating. You still hear people to this day talking about how the free market caused that bubble. And it's one of those things where, you know, if it's just really when the government is involved, people have this guise of authority, this guise of legitimacy, and it clouds their vision. So something that I talked about on the panel was that, If this had happened in any semblance of a free market, they would clearly be able to understand what caused the problem in the sense of, let's say that you had a dairy farm and you're going about selling your business, you're selling your milk, et cetera. And then your main buyer comes to you and says, we have a new directive from the higher ups to the tune of a trillion dollars, where instead of buying normal milk, we're going to just buy any kind of liquid that you produce we're not going to worry about the, the regulatory standards. We're not going to worry about the, the systems that have been in place for decades. We're just going to buy as much milk as possible because we want everyone to have milk. Well, what would you expect to happen in that industry? You would expect everyone's neighbor all of a sudden to be making a killing in milk production. You'd have dairy speculators, this and that, and the other thing. And then the moment that people start getting sick and dying from you know, unsafe milk, what are they going to say in the news? Dairy speculators gone mad again. Capitalism at it again, right? But You're this right. is the case where it's it's just one of those things that people can't see clearly because of that that guy's legitimacy. What
0: were some of the other big takeaways that you had there? There was a, a lot of great speakers and a lot of great folks attending. What were some of the other biggest takeaways from the from Freedom Fest?
2: Well, I think that obviously there's a lot of fear in that community because we do see the business cycle theory. We do see the fact that interest rates are are significantly low and a lot of people are scared, you know, and something else, we just recently passed the second longest expansionary period in the history of the United States, at least since the civil war, which I believe is when the data goes back to. So what this means is that we're now in the second longest expansionary period from the than the trough, the low point of the cycle. So people are really concerned, which is actually why I was excited to go, because I have been able to take that data, the same data that a lot of the people like Peter Schiff are proponents of, and rather than focus on cash and gold and silver, which I think are an interesting and potentially an important piece of everyone's portfolio that's at least worried about downside protection, I've taken that to invest in what I consider to be very recession-resistant, counter-cyclical assets, particularly mobile home parks and self-storage. Um, you know, Essentially, the demand for those products is inversely correlated with the overall economy. So if you anticipate that there is a significant correction, you're able to weather that storm by investing in those asset classes. Of course, when the economy is booming, when the capital markets are loose, all types of real estate do well. So you kind of are able to catch both sides of that spectrum. So that's really why I went to Fest in the first place, especially with that audience. Um, but generally speaking, people are quite scared. And because of that, there's a lot of people that are hoarding cash and a lot of people that are hoarding gold and silver. I understand the sentiment, but I really like to maximize my wealth and make sure that I'm looking at things on a risk-adjusted basis. Um, I'm not sure that the same risk adjusted returns are achievable in those other investment vehicles or you know currencies.
0: Yeah no I, I that you mention uh, the uh, the long, second longest expansion and that's one of the things that I've been thinking about too as well where preparing how do you position yourself how do you position your business right? Your assets, how do you look at investments? And you've mentioned two right there, which you guys do a lot of syndications in. Can you share a little bit more um, about some of these investments that you guys have done and that you're looking? Are you, and how does that market look? Are you guys still finding good quality uh, deals out there um, that will help you achieve uh, the outcomes that you're looking for?
2: yeah so it's interesting, right so I mean, I think a lot of people when they enter the real estate market, the first thing they want to focus on is single family houses and the reason for this is that most people have lived in a single family house they understand the investment criteria is not very stringent in the fact that you can invest thirty or fifty thousand dollars and buy a property, and that's some of the first investments I made were in the single family sector. I didn't buy the properties outright. We lent money to to people that were flipping properties, but either way, that was my interest in the sector. But as I became more sophisticated, I realized that you're leaving some money on the table if you're exclusively focusing on single family because of the simplicity of the investment in the sense that there isn't that many moving parts. Is the property rented? Is it not are the expenses in line with the market? Is the rent in line with the market? That's pretty much the only thing that you can really do. The real benefit of investing in commercial real estate is that because of the complexities of the asset classes, there can be a significant delta or difference between a mom and pop owner and a best in class owner. And self-storage is a perfect example of that. There are so many ways to add value. You can SEO, is a big part of the business. You have the manager, the manager which has different sales strategies such as upselling and leveraging relationship with U-Haul, getting relationships with military bases, universities, et cetera. All those line items add up to thousands of dollars of income on a monthly basis and therefore you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars of value on a, a proportional basis. So I think it's, it's important and that's really how I started being positioned in the business since then, I've invested in 30 syndications you know, across more than 100 properties. And the goal is to be as diversified as possible so that I can sleep at night. I think the best way to achieve that is through investing in high quality assets that are managed by some of the leading sponsors in the US that have decades of experience. And so that's the way that I positioned my own portfolio and then therefore the company itself.
0: Now you had mentioned the role that uh, the government played in the housing bubble, and you know regulations and laws that are being passed influences a lot of different sectors, and so, so it, do, it did with regarding the syndication industry and business. And due diligence is an extremely important topic because since the Jobs Act was passed, there's been a significant increase. Uh, in syndicated investment opportunities. But of course, as you know, (laughs) with that increase, uh, there isn't necessarily the folks with um, the same expertise that's uh, increased proportionally to the increase in opportunities. So, due diligence is, is, is super important. Can you speak a little bit to the importance of due diligence and what major questions investors should ask when they're doing due diligence on any passive real estate investment?
2: absolutely i think you make a great point there regarding the jab the jobs act particularly because this access doesn't mean that all deals are the same but when you go on the internet if you just google real estate crowdfunding you're going to see a ton of deals now the problem is all of these marketing documents they look exactly the same so it's very challenging if you are not sophisticated and have not had a significant background reviewing these deals investing in these deals etc you may have some challenges Later down the road, so the the key here is that it 's essential to know what questions to ask, which people are involved, because people are not going to tell you the negatives of the deal. so I really wanted to come on the show and talk about due diligence because it's it 's really critical, especially right now in the cycle where a lot of people have experienced success in real estate, but it 's unclear as far as whether or not that success is driven by market forces, which may or may not be. Replicatable. So, when I'm looking at due diligence, you know, I think there's about seven things that I think are really important to consider. And if you're a passive investor or an active investor, if you really start considering these seven things and asking questions about each of these seven things and also comparing deals on each of these seven things, I think you're going to be in a really good spot. In fact, you'll probably be ahead of about 80% of the other passive investors that are out there. So, the seven things, number, and this is an order of importance. So the first is the sponsor. What I'm trying to establish there is their track record of the business. Um, there's a lot of ways to do this. You can talk to references, but sometimes those are biased. So I like to get third parties. So if they say, you know, we have a hundred million under management, I want to talk to the lenders that have provided the loans for that assets. So that'll be able to confirm that. Uh, attorneys are very good. CPs are very good at providing this as well. And I think that that's a really good thing to do. Um, you can also do things like you know business background checks, personal background checks, et cetera. You can also pull title on random properties that they claim to own. You can use Chicago Title Company or RealQuest, for example. So if they claim to own a property, just pull the title. It's not intrusive. It basically says, yes, that entity does own this property. And that's just one of those things where you're trusting but verifying many, many things you can do, but really, it really comes down to the sponsor themselves. Then it's about the gut check themselves. How does this feel? Because this is something you also need to take into consideration, which is that real estate are long-term investments in illiquid assets. So it's about the personality. The personality is so much more important than anything else because that's who you're dealing with for the next seven to 10 years. Um, the, you know Just to put it in perspective, the, the last thing on my list, I'll jump ahead, is the legal documents. The reason they're last is because if you're investing even $100,000, if you have to sue someone, that $100,000 can be spent trying to get that $100,000 back. So it really comes back to all of the diligence is really reading between the lines to look at the sponsor themselves. Then I want to jump on to number two, which is the on site manager. And this is just a quick check, basically, understanding this level of sophistication of the on site manager, how much they have involved in the business, their track record in the market specifically. And also, this is something I like to ask for, which is the reporting from the on site manager to the sponsor. You don't need that on a regular basis, but You just want to see the level of sophistication. What software are they using? Those type of things. And I think that those two are a really good starting point. If you want to jump in, and totally understand that was a lot of content, but I think that those two are a really good starting point for a lot of investors.
0: Yeah, I like how you started too with looking at the deal and then the sponsor, who's involved with it. And then also, you know, something else you could look at too is who else is investing in the deal too, right? And the team that's involved. Uh, with this, which ties into the on-site manager, the management of it, because uh, as you know, Andrew, that's—I mean—that's truly the the secret sauce in in any investment is the is the management of it. So those are a great starting point. I like the like uh, the uh, pro tip that you also shared about pulling title and looking at some of the properties that the sponsor owns and verifying yeah. that they do because anyone can claim that they, that they own anything. That they uh,
2: right, exactly. I think that, you know, with the OnStart manager, this is something that Jeremy Roll talks about, which I know that he's been a guest on your program as well, which is that if you have, you know, a highly desirable retail shopping area in Rodeo Drive in Los Angeles, and it's 100% occupied, if the manager, the sponsor commits fraud, everyone's losing money. It does not matter. So you have to be investing with the right personalities. Something else that I think is really, really critical, but overwhelmingly does not get talked about enough is looking at the loan of the property. That is the, that's the third one on the list. And I would say that this is 99% of all the problems in real estate, particularly the problems related to the loss of principal, have something to do with the loan going wrong. So when I'm thinking about the loan, obviously I want to figure out how conservative or aggressive the loan is. A couple ways to do that, looking at the loan to value. Is it based on an appraisal? Who is like, Where is that value coming from? Loan to cost, which is also important because if you're, let's say you're buying a property for 15 million and you're putting, or yeah, you get a $10 million loan, for example, you're putting $5 million down. That's a reasonably conservative loan. But if you're adding another $2 million in capital expenditure, that also needs to be considered when you're trying to assess How conservative your loan is, because if you're putting additional two million dollars in the property, the loan to value is going to be much more favorable. Something else is the the debt service coverage ratio. Okay, this is the amount of income the property is producing minus the debt, in ratio with the debt. And so we like to see something in the one point two five range. I think that that's basically the minimum that we can see, but. You're looking at these metrics to try to get the full picture. So 1.5, 1.25 is fine. 1.5 is stronger. 2.0 is better. And you can see 2.0, 3.0 in areas like the mobile home park business, where there's a tremendous amount of ways to add value to the property without really implementing the capital expenditure. Now, Something else to take note of, and this is very underutilized, is looking at the interest only period. So in commercial real estate, it's common that there will be a period at the beginning of the loan, usually one to two years, where it's only the interest payments of the loan and the debt is not paying itself down. It's not amortizing during that period. Now, the reason that's important is that if you're comparing two properties and they have a comparable risk profile, but one has a five-year interest-only period, so the payments are smaller during the first five years, as opposed to the other that has a one-year interest-only period, you're going to think the one with the five-year is a much better deal. The cash flow can be significantly higher, like 30 or even 50% higher. I mean, it really can make a big difference depending on the loan. And so you need to take that in consideration because the time at which you're not paying down the debt, is, it's a more, I wouldn't say necessarily a risky loan, but it needs to be considered when looking at the risk of the loan. And so you take all those metrics, you look at them together, and you're tweaking the LTV, the DSCR and the IO period, as well as the loan term, and you're starting to get a much more clear understanding. And when you talk about separating yourself from the competition, this is something that virtually very, very few investors are considering, but it's by far the most important side of the entire capital stack. It's the majority of the purchase. You're listening to Hunter Thompson on the Cashflow Ninja
0: podcast. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Life settlement investments have allowed financial and banking institutions to not only buy their equity contractually, but also diversify their capital from any economic, market, and geopolitical risk. It's been part of the billion-dollar blueprint followed by institutional investors. And if you're an accredited investor, you can also now participate in this vehicle with enormous growth potential. You can watch an informational webinar presented by one of the premier organizations providing life settlement investments for number of solutions at cashflowninja.com forward slash life settlements. Blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies will not only disrupt money, but every industry on the planet. These new innovations and technologies will affect every area of your life in the future. The cryptocurrency course teaches you everything that you need to know about getting started, and profiting with cryptocurrencies, and includes expert training from the top crypto experts in the world. You'll learn how to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies, how to safely store your crypto, how to become a sound investor, even if you're just a beginner, and how to apply blockchain technology to your business. You can watch a free crypto masterclass and grab the crypto course at cashflowninja.com forward slash crypto course. You're listening to Hunter Thompson on the Cashflow Ninja Podcast. And now back to our interview. Such a very, very good point because real estate, especially very large pieces of commercial real estate, it's a debt play. Right? Yes. It, that's what it is. And it's I think a lot of folks don't realize it. They're they're looking at the cash flow, which is obviously very important between cash flow connections and Cashflow ninja. But right. <laughs> you have to bear in mind that this is a debt play. This is how people use debt to get rich, as, you know, Robert Kiyosaki would say. So, it's, this, is, this is basically financing this debt and how good you can finance it, and as you mentioned, what the coverage is on that, and then all the other variables that ties into play. So, I think this is a, a fantastic point that you're making. This is a point which a lot of people uh, do not pay attention to. They look at all the other things, but They don't spend any time on the debt, which, as you mentioned, is the most important thing uh, when you're looking at these deals.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's literally the majority of the capital stack. And it's also the, the most important determiner of whether or not you're going to be able to protect your principal. So I, I do think it's critical. Um, the, the next one on the list is looking at the property performance and the pro forma. And I think the main question you want to talk about there is, and sometimes this isn't available, but it should be made available upon request, which is looking at the trailing three month and 12 month financials and comparing those with the year one, two, and three projections. So basically, you're looking at the previous 12 months compared to the the first 12 months once you invest the capital in the 24 and the 36, and comparing the major differences. What you want to do is identify where the differences are taking place and asking the sponsor to justify those differences. So they may say, that look, the previous 12 months, there's been a 53% operating expense ratio, and we're projecting that that number will be closer to 48%. Now, that may be reasonable, but you need to ask them how to justify that in the sense that they should say, look, we have two properties that were, are within three hours of this property. We have intimate knowledge of the market, we've pulled comps, and we have very good understanding of where the occupancy, excuse me, the expense ratio should be. And the property management company that we're hiring has two assets right next door and the expense ratio is about the same. The vintage is about the same. And we're in a very comparable market in terms of rental rates. That's the kind of conversation that's really great to have because all of the questions, all of those differences, the sponsor clearly should have an understanding of. They should have been able to think it through prior to you asking them. And you're able to really get a really good understanding of how detailed they've been when it comes to those projections and, you know, that conversation as a whole. Now something else when it comes to the the pro forma, which I think is critical, is the exit cap rate or just conducting really cap rate analysis. You know, what is the property being purchased at? What is the what is the cap rate that the property is being sold at? I think the industry standard is something around the range of ten basis points per year as an expansion. So if you're whole, if you're buying a property at a six cap, I think the you know being really conservative and a good good solid conservative number would be selling the property to seven cap in ten years. Now sometimes you'll see that they're buying a property at a six and a half cap and saying that the market is actually a six cap. And then they're saying we're selling at a seven cap. So we're underwriting to 10, year, 10 basis points per year. Well, that isn't a deal killer, but you get what I'm saying. Basically, if you're buying it at a six and a half cap, I think we should say that the market is a six and a half cap because it's actually, there's no better comp than the property itself. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, just wanted to touch on the, the cap rate expansion as well.
0: No, that definitely does. That definitely does. And they're all different for all the different um, sort of uh, investment vehicles. Now, Hunter, what causes these commercial real estate investments to go wrong? And what are some of the things that people can do about it when they do, when they do go wrong?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think really it comes back to that loan. You know, that's the main thing that that causes trouble. So one of the things that I want to be really cautious about right now in the cycle is getting debt that not only has a reasonable loan to value, also has a term at which I can add significant value during. So if I have a property, you know, this is one of the reasons why I love self-storage so much. 30 year th- excuse me 30 day leases allow you to raise rents aggressively and you're able to really increase the amount of NOI there is to the property by implementing ancillary income strategies. So when I look at things to go wrong, I think that's a really important question right now in the cycle. A lot of the answers are the answers that people usually give when you say how can you make a boatload of money in real estate? But I'm looking at the same coin on the different side in the sense that if we leverage a relationship with U-Haul, buy a property where they're not implementing U-Haul, we call our contact at U-Haul. As soon as we buy the property, they park 15 trucks on our facility. We then rent those trucks out to the tenants and get a commission for facilitating the transaction. That one strategy can raise NOI by let's say $3,500 a month or so. And I've invested in properties where that's been the case. Well, that is a good way to make a ton of money, but more importantly, that's a great way to protect your equity. It's a great way to decrease your risk because you're not implementing some kind of capital expenditure. You're not dealing with the city, you're not getting zoning requirements, et cetera. But you can really protect your position by doing that um, as well as doing things like focusing on the market itself, you know, looking for markets that have diverse employments, you know solid growth, in terms of not only in terms of median income, but also in terms of job growth. I want to look for jobs that have medical and educational, government, tech, hospitality. Hospitality is one, you know, it don't want to be overweight to hospitality. It's good to have a mix, but if hospitality is a driving factor, you can see tremendous cyclical changes. I mean, look what happened in Vegas during the last cycle. So those are the kind of things that you can really protect yourself when it comes to things going wrong.
0: Yeah, I was actually, when you mentioned that, I was thinking Las Vegas right away. Yeah. Because <laughs> it definitely it's does. It's the first I, thing to go. Yeah, that's the first thing to go is the plane ticket to Vegas, right? And the, <laughs> the weekends and the hotels and all the other fun that, that, that that's going on there. So, no, that that that's very uh, va- valuable, Hunter. Now, you also have shared some information of how you can, how basically you can underwrite opportunities for achievable results. What are some of the things that you can share around that?
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, it really goes back to looking at those trailing 12 months and trying to compare with the expectations. You know, one of the things that I really think is critical, one of the best ways to do this is to look at not only market comps, but on an internal basis. So a great example of this is is there a significant difference between the rental rate assumptions after the market after the property has reached market rates and the inflation assumptions so what i mean by that is let's say that there's a property that's 15% under market rent okay they're underwriting to get up to market rent in 3 years which i think is reasonably conservative you know 5 or 6% per year you catch up with it or 7% per year you catch up with it okay so at the end of the third year you catch up with that market rates, and the, just to clarify, I don't want people to think I was not doing my math right. You're assuming that there is some rental increase in the market during that time, so that's why I use the seven number as opposed to five. So, let's say you've got up to market rates. Okay, at that point, the argument needs to be had that inflation, if inflation is increasing by three percent, and therefore expenses are increasing by by three percent, then rental income also needs to increase by 3% in the sense that there shouldn't be a massive difference between rental rate increases and expenses in the rate at which expenses increase because all of inflation basically moves at the same pace. So what I mean by that is if rental increases are increasing by 6% and expenses are only increasing by 3%, there's a delta there. And that delta compounded over seven or eight or 10 years can be really significant. You see, Deals in the ninth year where all of a sudden they 're cash flowing at twenty three percent because these underlying assumptions it, it 's something that Paul Moore talks about, which who by the way would be a great guest for your show if you haven 't had him on by the way. He talks about how you know if you're you 're pointing a direction, you think you 're going to walk the right direction and you 're three percentage points off and you walk ten thousand miles by the time you get to where you 're going you're going to be in a completely different stratosphere right so right. it 's a similar thing, so that difference matters you want to also look at all the underlying assumptions in terms of things like lease up rates, rental rate increases, occupancy rates. I'm just looking for, is the sponsor putting themselves in a position to deliver on their promises? Or are they looking at this investment as a transaction in the sense that once it's done, it's done? So if I see a market occupancy of 92%, I want to see a underwritten assumption of 88%. Why? Because it allows for some flexibility in the market, right? I think all of us are confident there's going to be a correction in the next five years. I think that would be on the historically completely ridiculous if that didn't happen. So we want to account for that. And that allows you for some breathing room so things don't have to perform optimally to in order to you know deliver on the promises the sponsor is making to the investor.
0: No, Hunter, from a market cycle standpoint in commercial real estate, and I know I'm lumping a bunch of stuff here together, <laughs> together, which uh, you know, which they're all different. As we mentioned, you know, cell storage and uh, mobile home parks are great res- recession-resistant uh, vehicles. What is your outlook? What are you seeing out there from a market cycle standpoint? Uh, we've seen compressed cap rates, especially in multifamily. That's why a lot of uh, folks are are considering. Uh, these uh, more um, favorable investments currently. What are some of your views?
2: Yeah. So I started the business just to be as diversified as possible. And that was really the main goal. So I've invested in virtually every type of commercial real estate and non-commercial real estate that exists. The challenge and I guess the, for the benefit, I created my structure, my strategy, my company to be nimble enough to take advantage of changing market conditions. So I love multifamily. It is a, one of the best investments in the United States, but I actually don't have any holdings in my multifamily right now because we bought at really favorable times. We were able to sell at the right buyer to the right price and basically knock it out of the park, especially on a risk adjusted basis. But the thing is it's hard now to find deals where it makes sense because it's so competitive, right? And that com- not competition is one of the benefits of the asset class in the sense that there's a lot of liquidity. So if things go sideways, you're going to be able to find a buyer. However, I have been almost exclusively focused on mobile home parks and self storage for the last two years, especially when it comes to cash flow connections investments, because there's actually consistent deal flow. We've leveraged some relationships with some very influential leaders in the sector and allowed our investors to invest through us into those opportunities or to create those opportunities. And I don't see a lot of ways to debunk the self storage business. I mean, I don't see a lot of ways affordable housing isn't going anywhere. I mean, even in its current state, Social Security is not mathematically possible to live on in a median two-bedroom apartment. The the median two-bedroom apartment's about $1,200 a month. The average Social Security check is about $1,300 a month. So you have all this demand for affordable housing, but that's in its current form. I mean, if you just Google Social Security insolvent, the first thing you'll probably see is not some crazy lunatic Peter Schiff website, by the way, I'm a huge fan of his. But the actual government website, ssa.gov, is going to say in a big red banner on top, I, this is a concern a lot of people are having. And yes, we'll most likely have to reduce the benefits by 25% in year 2031. That's what the CBO says. Uh, that's the government agency. It's not some. It's not zerohedge.com. So I think the thing is, they're trying to prepare the public for this. And the numbers I was talking earlier about the mobile home park business That doesn't even factor that in. So I'm seeing a lot of opportunity in there. I don't see that going anywhere in the next 10 years, which is basically our our time horizon.
0: Yeah, Hunter, if you think of the statistics that are out there and what you're seeing currently, I mean, it's kind of uh, astonishing. It's uh, 76% of people right now basically live paycheck to paycheck. There's a savings crisis with uh, 60% of folks having less than uh, than $1,000 saved. 47% 47% have le- less than $400 saved. Then you're looking at student loans with 33% of student loans uh, uh, that are delinquent. And then 65% of people are on some form of government assistance with a national <laughs> savings rate currently in 2018, the second longest economic expansion in the United States at 3.1%. <laughs> so th- this, yeah. is, this is when things are presumably well <laughs> at, a very, yeah. at the top of a market cycle. So to your point, if, if we're entering a contraction and a recession, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going it's, it's to be very, very ugly and you have to position yourself for that. And as you mentioned that affordable housing, there's going to be folks that need to provide affordable housing for the majority of the public.
2: Yeah, agreed. I think one of the asset classes, which we haven't talked about because I, I don't have a lot, any experience investing in it, but I'm certainly interested. So if any of your listeners have contacts in the industry, please do send me an email. I'll, I'll be happy to leave my information at the end of the, the episode. But the assisted living and senior housing, uh, the demographics are very compelling. Uh, obviously the cat's out of the bag and picture everyone understands that big picture thesis, but I'm looking for someone that can really, really execute. I can see the similarities with the self-storage business in the sense that it Runs much more like a fully functioning business, but because of that, you get the benefits of investing in real estate, you get the cash flow, you get the inexpensive leverage, but you also get the complexities, which allow for really significant value add potential. So I'm very interested in that asset class. I have my eye on it. I've reviewed several deals, just none of them have been perfect fit yet.
0: Definitely a very, very desirable asset class that plays into all of the demographic trends uh, currently. Hunter, any uh, last thoughts from my listeners? Any uh, thing that you'd like to
1: share?
2: Yeah, I'd say that here's the thing. It's it's trying to do the thing that no one else is doing right now. So if you've invested in stocks, if you've invested in real estate recently, um, things have been going really, really well. And It's the really important time in market cycles like these to take a good look in the mirror and review those deals and ask yourself the question that almost no one is asking, which is, are these returns replicatable during different market conditions? As in, does the management expertise account for these returns? Is the cap rate compression, a big portion of this. Now, I will say that Due diligence resulted in the purchase during those markets that experienced significant cap rate compression. In the sense that, to some extent, your expertise may have resulted in you investing in a market where there was significant cap rate compression. You looked at the demographics, you you saw the job growth, you said this is a, a no no doubt play. My real question is, is that same strategy going to to take place again? I'll be completely honest. We have had some complete home runs that there totally not replicatable in the same risk profile right now will the returns be good in the future i'm confident that's why i have the business i do but the the ability to buy a property and sell it you know within 3 years or 4 years with a tremendous cap rate compression that's something that would be mathematically impossible over the next 3 years particularly in something like the mobile home park business, where if it goes down by another 300 basis points, which is what we saw since 2008 or so, that would be below interest rates. So people aren't really buying real estate unless they can get a positive spread on interest rates. So hopefully that makes sense. And, you know, happy to expand on that in another episode, but I think it's important to, to take an honest look at the deals and, and make sure that you're well positioned for the future.
0: Hunter, where can my listeners learn more about you and everything that uh, you're up to at Cashflow Connections and
2: where can they stay informed of uh, all of the projects that you're involved with? Sure. So you can go to cashflowconnections.com. I wrote an ebook about self-storage recently. It's got some positive feedback. I think it's a very easy read and it also gives a good understanding of where I see the opportunity. I also recently created a a mentorship program for people that are interested in syndications. There's such a lack of educational content out there about syndications because of the level of sophistication. So if you're interested in that, you can go to cfcmentorshipprogram.com. And I think a lot of content on there that you'll probably never find otherwise. So thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge around this extremely uh, important topic of due diligence, especially in the times that we're in. Uh, Really appreciated having you on.
1: Thanks again, MC. Let's do it again soon. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Thank you for
0: joining me again on the Cashflow Ninja. Thank you for all your support. You rock. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com or text Cashflow Ninja to 44222. I'm also posting daily videos on Facebook and YouTube. And we'll live stream weekly starting May 2018. To make sure you don't miss any of the live streams, please like and subscribe to my Facebook and YouTube platforms. I'm also dropping content on Instagram daily. Be sure to follow us on Instagram to get in on the action. I want to thank you for spending your most precious resource with me today, your time. That's our show for today. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. (laughs) All right. <laughs>